You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel, and you've got Living Writers. And today I'm so happy um, to have joining me via technology, Eduardo C. Corral. Eduardo, welcome to Living Writers in our, our virtual space here. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to, to meet you. It's great to, great to um, we're Zooming. And it's thanks- funny how every like natural disaster or like a huge historical event introduces new words into our daily vocabulary, like Zooming and Zoom. Has, it's a new word for us, right? That we know what it means now, right? So... Right. I'll be so happy the day that it becomes less um, less <laughs> yeah. of a daily word, you know? Optional. <laughs> <laughs> Zoom optional. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, completely. And before we jump into the conversation, the conversation today, I've got Guillotine here out with Grey Wolf Press, uh, August 2020. So yeah. this, this, is, this is a new lovely book in the world. So without further ado, your bio in the back of Guillotine. Eduardo C. Corral is the son of Mexican immigrants. His first book, Slow Lightning, won the Yale Younger Poets Prize. He is the recipient of a Whiting Award, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and a Hodder Fellowship from Princeton University. He teaches in the MFA program in creative writing at North Carolina State University. Yeah, that's me. Sounds like me. That sounds like <laughs> <laughs> you got the right living writer. The right one, yes. Woo. <laughs> well, Eduardo, let's let's start with um, what was it like to get the the first the arc in the the mail when you first saw Guillotine, and this this book coming? I don't know, going from your poems in the notebooks, if I'm right, because I think yes. you use notebooks yes. A, yes. a lot in your process, yes. and then to like manuscript to arc and then to book. Well, yeah. well, the heart of my creative practice is attentiveness, paying attention, right? So I, uh, I can't write or revise every day. That sounds quite undoable. It's undoable for me, outlandish, impossible uh, for me as a writer to sit down every day. I think that's a task of memoir and prose writers. So I let them enjoy that daily task. Uh, I can't write and revise every day, but, but I can pay attention every day. And I do. Right? I move through the world being very attentive. Uh, making, have all my five senses open to the world, right? And every day I jot down observations, uh, things I misheard, things I touched, things I taste in my notebooks, right? Being uh, normal little moleskins, because I'm a very pretentious young poet, so I have moleskins. And also after a while, when people find out you're just, you're a poet, that's all you get for like Christmas or, uh, or birthday gifts, gift cards. <laughs> Or notebooks. <laughs> That's how you get. So I made peace with it, right? So I, I jot down every day uh, into my notebooks, uh, both Moleskins and in my device, my iPhone, because that's one thing that's kind of always constant by my side, right? So I move through the world paying attention. And it's a slow process for me. It took nine and a half years to write my first book, Slow Lightning. It took about eight years from uh, uh, first poem to finishing uh, the last poem for Guillotine. So very slow and deliberate. Um, but in the last six months, the process quickens because you get final, you know, the final galleys, right? Everything, no more changes allowed, right? But every time I read that sentence in the email from the press, this is it, no more, <laughs> no more changes, right? I almost take it personally, <laughs> like a personal insult, like, what do you mean no more? It's just, because it's just me, right? Because up to the last minute, I was changing things here and there, right? So uh, when you finally see it in it, 
in one of its first final forms, right, uh, in a galley, right, uh, it's quite shocking. Uh, first of all, because I'm so slow, I reject so many things I write, I, th I revise so many things I write, to see that, oh, over these seven, eight years, I have been producing, I have been writing. It always comes to, uh, it always comes as a surprise, a shock even, that I've, I've, I have been productive, I have managed to write a book, then I managed to write another book. It really is surprising to me because I think of myself as very slow and deliberate. I love that, that you say it's almost like a shock. Like you're looking at yourself and you're like, oh yeah, I, I made that. And that yes. was quite good. To, to quote uh, our so, news right? from the 90s, oops, I did it again, right? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, oops, there it is again. Hey, Eduardo, is that on your, is that on your playlist for no, living writers? No, 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 no. <laughs> So. <laughs> but I, I but I hear we have French pop songs to look forward to. I do because you know uh, at the beginning, beginning of the at the beginning of the pandemic something really uh, I just couldn't read or write right I, especially poetry right I couldn't read lyric poems because when you read a lyric poem you're engaged with somebody else's interiority the lyric speakers sense of being right their thoughts their emotions their interiority who they are right you're pulled into that interiority. Uh, via the lyric, right? And I didn't want that because I was spending all day on my couch thinking and thinking, right? I had all the interiority I could handle my own. So just reading a lyric poem, uh, it, it felt intrusive, right? I, I, I needed to be by myself, right, in this moment, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. I just needed to be by myself with my own thinking. I couldn't read lyric poems, but I could read novels because novels have that world building the sentence is propulsive, right? A happens, B happens, right? There's a there's a momentum, right? Not a not a pulling inward what the lyric does, right? There's momentum to fiction, and I was able to dive into that and just kind of escape my my mind for a while and escape the world for a while, which I found absolutely very necessary and and, and wonderful. I needed that, right? But it took a few months to get back to the lyric, um, to lyric poems, but I'm back there again, enjoying it. But I needed a break. And, and it sounds like what the the novel, like reading novels allowed for too, is that it was, it like you said, it was like an escape into it because it was into something that wasn't, I mean, even if there's interiority within the novel, it's different. It's like broader, yeah. like you're saying. It's not like going into something so intimate yeah. with another That's mind yeah, in some there, way. Yeah, I mean, I hate to be uh, speaking generalities because- That's true, because then like Joyce- Because yeah. prose can be lyrical and, and, full, and full of detail and, and lyrical grace too, right? And prose and ly lyrics can be also have proportions and narrative elements too at the end of the day, right? But you're right, I, just, I needed that kind of uh, escape and I needed that kind of world building, right? Because it was a world, not my own, <laughs> right? And, uh, the world that I'm living, that we all live in right now, it's scary and uncertain. So I need to kind of escape. And also, I must give a shout out to Eduardo from January 2020, who had the foresight to say to himself, you know, you should probably get cable this year. <laughs> so in January, I, I, I set up my TV that I've had in storage for years. I haven't had a TV or cable for over eight years. I set up my TV, I ordered my cable package, and there it was. And when the pandemic hit, I was like, Thank you, Eduardo, January 2020, because I needed it. I needed it. I needed it. I was another like, wow. another <laughs> lifeline? Another escape, another escape hatch, an escape pod, right? right? Yeah. I, because 
I've heard about all these shows, series, uh, reality shows, because I'm on, on Twitter and Facebook continuously. I, so I've heard, I know all about these shows. I've heard about right, these shows from my friends. I've read essays about these shows. Right? I've read essays about these shows. I've read essays about the shows, even though I haven't watched them. But it was good to watch them, like The Watchmen or The Great British Bake Off, which I instantly fell in love with, right? <laughs> Amazing. So all this kind of stuff. Then old shows from my childhood or early adulthood, like Star Trek just, um, Voyager, that kind of stuff, right? It was really wonderful, right? Another, yes, another way to escape the world and just to uh, have some kind of pleasure, right? Some pleasure. And it, and it sounds like going back to if, like the Voyager, the Star Trek Voyager, <laughs> like a time when you were a child and things were were different i mean there's there's always complications even when we're kids like i think it's yeah. it's kind of silly when people are like oh the childhood of like i don't know <laughs> um but but there's something about the way our mind moves when we're a child too and yeah and maybe there aren't things yeah. all queued up for every day yeah. sometimes <laughs> of course it varies from your your own personal experience it varies by culture by class right it varies by the kind of family you have right but i mean from each year i mean we push against different things right and different things push against us year by year right when you're younger there are different things you push against right when you're a teenager you're rebelling against family you're home life, right? And when you're, uh, when you're my age, you're rebelling against, you know, uh, insomnia, <laughs> you're rebelling against, you know, sore feet. Uh, it's it's <laughs> all different kind of thing, right? So, you know, time has its way with us, right? So. Yes, yes. And that time, it's, it moves so strange, strangely these days. It's, it's almost quick and slow at the same time. It, it's it, hard to. Simultaneous, it is, it is, it is to you. And it, it's so annoying, right? Because you, you're, you're, you move through the day and like, this is so slow. Like, come on, when, come on, next hour, move, come on, arrive next minute, next hour, next, right? Then it is the next hour and it is the next day. And you're like, wait, when did that happen? Right? It's September 16th. Today is September 16th. Yeah. Today it felt like the first of the month. Completely. And, yeah. and it really feels like fall is here and definitely university life is yeah. rolling and yeah weather-wise here in raleigh north carolina you know fall is coming right last night i was sleeping with my windows open and uh last night i had to get a blanket for the first time for, uh, for uh, this fall right like ah oh, it, it's, it's approaching well i see we're technically still in summer but fall is around the corner right or how get fall already i forgot i lose track of time <laughs> we might be in fall i don't know i hear this from my, all my writer friends right you know writers our artists in general, artists in general, we crave and need uh, solitude, right? Solitude, right? We need to pull away from the world every once in a while. The difference is um, there's no agency here, right? We're not pulling away from the world because we need to concentrate on something or we need to just be by ourselves. We are forced to pull away from the world. We are told we need to do this because our own health, the health of our own community, which absolutely makes sense and is necessary, right? But it's that distinction, the, the lack of agency, right? The, uh, from uh, uh, pulling away from the world, right? That makes, for me, the solitude not as enriching, as nourishing as it usually is, right? It's uh, when before the pandemic, when I was by myself, by choice. Um, I was able to work and think, right? Uh, but now, uh, I was, in another way, I, another way to think about it, I was, I was able to cut myself off from the world for an hour, for half a day, for a day. Now, there's no way to cut off the world. It's just there. It's just there continuously. It's, out, it's everywhere, right? 
I, I, I look out from my window and there's somebody walking by and buying a mask, wearing a mask, which is wonderful. We should all be wearing masks, right? But then it reminds you, why do we need to be wearing masks, right? So yes. it's there. This and is why, again, those, uh, those French pop songs were very important to me because I haven't, I can't, I spent maybe, maybe close to maybe two months in France during my lifetime, but I don't know a lick of French, right? <laughs> Not a lick of French, right? But that's why, again, I love these French pop songs, the French songs, because I can, I can enjoy the music, the melody, the vocal performance, but I don't know what's going on. And I like that. I like that kind of displacement from meaning, uh, right? Because everything means also... so much right now, right? Everything's so fraught with meaning, right? And, and, uh, and I like not knowing. I like not knowing right now, here and there. Yeah, that well, because the, the not knowing, I think, is like the gift that like the writer needs. Yes. Like, and being like comfortable in that, like being able to occupy that not knowing, right? Because that's the only way the, the making will happen. Yeah. That's, yeah. One of the biggest breakthroughs I had postgraduate school was these two ideas that came one after another. One was just not to imagine an audience for any of my work, right? right? Because if I imagine an audience for my work, I was probably unconsciously working the language for that audience so they would understand or would resonate with them a little extra, right? So it's kind of narrowing the possibilities for my language instead of expanding possibilities for my language on the page. And uh, that was very important for me to stop thinking about audience and also to stop writing with intention, intentionality, right? I remember when I first started writing poems as an undergrad at Arizona State University, I would sit down and say, I'm gonna write a poem about my grandmother crossing the desert and the reader is gonna feel really bad about it. <laughs> I'm gonna sit down at the desk and write a poem about my ex-boyfriend and the reader's gonna hate him, right? There's all this intentionality. As they should. As they should, right? As they should, right? You hear that, Robert? Uh, anyway, <laughs> but all this kind of intentionality, notions of audience, I mean, I found for me, they just narrowed, right? They were narrow, they were narrowings instead of enlargements, uh, possibilities. I want possibilities for the language, right? So, so is that something so, God, I've got like 20 questions now for you. <laughs> what did I ask first? Um, is this sort of, are you, is this kind of an influence that you got from Robert Hayden? Like this resistance to some particular audience or? It, 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 it's really tricky for all writers and especially I think writers for writers of color, writers from so-called marginalized positions in society uh, because there's sometimes based on your last name or the way you present yourself, the way you are visible in the world, there's subject matter expectations, right? And I mean, you need to write what you need to write about. If that if that lines overlaps with a certain expectation, so be it, right? But yeah, it's it's a tricky kind of thing. It's like, what do I write about, right? This is why I was I stopped thinking about audience to see what came to me, right? If I stop thinking about an audience, right? And Robert Hayden has always Robert Hayden has always been very important to me, right? Because I've said this in interviews, you know, for the longest time, for the first book, I struggled. Is this too Latinx? Is this too queer? Is it not Latinx enough? Is it not queer enough? Is, is there enough of the border here? Et cetera, et cetera, right? And reading Robert Hayden, his slim body of work, uh, and he just rejected all kind of labels. He wanted to be known just as a poet, which is fine. I'm, I'm not there myself. I, lo I love being known as a Latinx poet, a queer poet, a border poet, right? Uh, to, to borrow a... Uh, uh, so I'm thinking about Jericho Brown, he, you know, he says anytime you see like a, a, a modifier, right, or adjective in front of the word poet, 
those are not constrictions. Sorry, they're additional windows, right? Yeah. For, 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 for the poet to see, right? Again, more possibilities, enlarge, and enlarging the possibilities for the work for you as a writer, right? So, but Hayden did taught me, you know, for and me. And for the reader too. For the reader like, too. Worlds <laughs> need to be enlarged. <laughs> and, and worlds overlap too, right? Yes. The self is plural. I am many things at once. The self is in abundance, all right? And also the self is fluid, in flux. Who I was five years ago is not who I, who I am today. And, who I am in the future is not hopefully not the same person I am today, right? So if the self, you know, is in flux, right? So of course my poems, my influences, my approach to language is always in flux too, right? Be, uh, it made me shaped. But Hayden was one of the primary shapers and still one of the primary shapers of my, of my aesthetics, my approach to language, because he just taught me the simple lesson of craft, all right? How craft is so vital, right? That the poem has to exist on its own kind of, merits, quote-unquote, right? It has to have its own kind of resonance, its own pleasures, right? So. And, and so it's interesting to think about, uh, like, considering guillotine, like, 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 how there's different, like, the way the shapes that the poems take on the page and yeah. what yeah. they're doing and what they're um, resisting and, like, doing, because, you know, there's, yeah, or, or yeah, here's one like Song of the Open Road, too. Like, I feel like they're connecting back to the Whitman who yeah. you're just calling upon there for a moment, too. And, um, but then other pages, like, yeah, where the, the words are shadows and, um, overlapping, like you were just talking about, and Lovely some bolded and braids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, yeah, those there's a more typographical play in Gating than there is in the first book. I just want it because sometimes um, a lot of the work, especially the testament sequence in, in Gating, is voice driven, right? There are voices, personas, char uh, other characters, right? That came to me, right? Um, and sometimes they came to me simultaneously, so I'd hear two or three voices, and some of these kind of blurred, braided uh, typographical poems try to capture that kind of a uh, feeling that, you know, like m many things coming at you at once, which I think many people understand in our in our age where we're surrounded by information, saturated by information and imagery, right? Everything's coming at us simultaneously, right? It's a bit, it could be overwhelming, right? It could be overwhelming. So I just wanted to capture that sense on the page, right? Of uh, linguistic or voice or the voice is overwhelming, right? The page, like, right? So they, as they sometimes overwhelm us, right? Influence, yes. memories, emotions, intellectual states, and we, we're overwhelmed by that, right? So for those particular poems, Eduardo, when you, when you were writing those in the notebook, like, mm -hmm. is that, like, is that how you were writing it? Like, almost like with a pencil and you turned, like, the lead on the side to make <laughs> it thicker, or like, yeah, how did it, how did the making part of that happen? Because, like, You've talked about the hearing it, the yeah. impulse. I, I have a very strict drafting kind of policy. Like I least have, I need to have at least ten drafts by hand before I leap to the laptop, uh, because the cleanness of the screen it, it, it tricks the eye. I'm like, oh, that that looks clean. It looks like it's been published online already, right? Like an online journal. I don't like what that does to my eye and a false sense of like accomplishment. Oh, it looks clean already, right? It looks publishable. Uh, so I, I wait at least 10, I need 10 drafts by hand before I leap to the screen. But when it comes to the typographical poems, I would spend, you know, I'm a night owl. So uh, for years, I would from two to five or 6 a.m., 
I would just play around with language on my word processing systems I have on my laptop, right? So I would just mess around, play around, braid things, blur things, do this. And it took hours and hours and hours to find the right kind of shape, right? And some of them feel imprecise to it. I feel some of them are not where they need to be, but I also like that. They're incomplete, right? Right. Yeah, why is that important? Like, if the imprecise, like, what does that allow then or become part of the experience of the poem? One thing I wanted to, there are two things I wanted to different from slow lightning and from the poems of slow lightning to the poems of guillotine. For nine and a half years, I worked on slow lightning. Every, every, every darn syllable in that book was thumbed over. Uh, so I still can't escape the sense that some, some of the poems are a bit overwrought. They're just... They're tight, tight. They're just, just too clean. They're just, too just clean. too, too, too crafted. Uh, not many of them, uh, uh, but some of them, I just feel uh, the spark has been kind of um, touched out of them, right? Kind of smoothed out. So I was very weary of that for the second book, right? I was like, okay, I'm going to take it as far as I can, but I'm not going to go really, really obsessive about making this draft as perfect I, as I imagine it can be, right? They have it have its flaws, and it, its flaws. And I, not only the typographical stuff, but all, it's just the lyric poems to themselves, right? I could have I spent two or more years fine-tuning those poems, right? But it would have not made much of a difference at the end of the day. It would have been a phrase here, a different shape of a line. And uh, that was, an, that was I think that's not enough time. That's not, it's not worth it for me, I think, to spend that much time. Well, but but it also feels like you because you have a different um, like you want something different from these poems and and maybe more f- yeah. like your the future poems too. Yeah. Although I love your idea of that ten ten handwritten you know because. Because that feels like things are still, there's friction there because it's even the physical act of that is different in a way. <laughs> yeah. And this, is a, this could be also very generational, right? I mean, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I, I didn't have a computer growing up, right? I, I didn't get a computer to, I think, a, a, way after graduate school. So, but if you, can't, if you were born and raised with devices, uh, tapping on or writing on them is natural and organic for you, right? So mm-hmm. it, it is a very generational thing too, right? Mm-hmm. And also because the second book is full of, of human utterances, of, of, of utterances not rooted in my body and my own personal experiences, right? And uh, I didn't want to fine tune those too much because I felt like I wasn't going to be imposing too much of myself onto those voices, which sounds silly because I'm the one kind of channeling, channeling those voices. I'm the one putting those voices on the page. So I'm the one, you know, kind of manipulating, modulating them from the get-go. But I didn't want to just do it. I didn't want to obsess over getting it just right. Because I, I see these testament sequences as human utterance, voices on the page, right? And as we know, when we have conversations or dialogues with other people, uh, people have a little ticks in the way they say things, right? The enunciation might be a bit off. They stutter here and there, right? They, mis- they mispronounce the third sil- syllable in a word. I wanted that to kind of stay there, all right? A bit. That's very human, too. Yes, also, yes, yes. That's, and so, so did the testaments for, in guillotine, that's, that started from an ekphrastic poem? Um, yes. can, yeah, can you talk about how, yeah, this, how this started for you, Eduardo? Yes, the, the, the heart of the book and nearly half of the book, uh, of the second book, 18, is these uh, persona poems, these voice-driven poems of 
immigrants, both Mexican and Central American, moving into Southern Arizona on their way to other places in this country, right? So they're, they're migrating, right? They're, they're immigrants, right? But they're moving through the harsh terrain of Southern Arizona, where in the summer it gets 118, 121, right? There are several human rights organizations that set up plastic barrels along footpaths, known uh, footpaths, uh, trails used by immigrants, right? They know people use them, right? So they set these water stations up, right? For them to find water, right? When they need to, right? And maybe uh, prevent uh, some deaths, right? Because people do die out there from thirst and hunger, right? And from the weather, uh, the, the beating sun. So when I saw this, uh, this photograph by, uh, by Montoya, uh, this photograph of this blue barrel, right? I just saw those barrels, that plastic, as a space where people can score, can scratch, can write, uh, confessions, rants, curses, hexes, jokes, uh, right? I saw it as, as a space, as a text, right? A space where people, immigrants, right? Uh, Mexicans, Central Americans can inscribe their thoughts. It was it. here. Mm -hmm. Like this sense of like, like you're saying like these testaments, I was here. This was. Mm -hmm. I was here. I was here. Yes. But, uh, but deliberately nobody's named in the testament sequence. I don't want to give, uh, that kind of, to name somebody is to give something of yourself, your, some of your identity, some of your uh, presence uh, and being to a, another person. And I, I wanted to, I didn't want to give that to the reader, right? I didn't want to give that to the reader, right? I wanted to focus on the voices, the cascading of the, of the human mind, the thinking, right? I wanted the thinking to be center, not the bodies, because bodies of, the bodies of immigrants in this country are reduced to labor. They're here to take our jobs. They're here to do the jobs no Americans will do. They're here to work in our kitchens. They're here to tend to our fields. So all these immigrants are, are reduced in the Western imagination, the American imagination, into physical things, right? Often devoid of a heart or a mind, right? This is why I center the thinking of, of these people, my gente, right? Um, the relatives. These are my relatives. These are my family members, right? I, I wanted to center the thinking, not names, identities, or, you know, even, rarely is a body described, rarely, right? And also rarely do they kind of explain why they're moving, right? They don't give a reason. They don't try to justify why they're moving from one place to another, right, for the most part, right? Because I, you know, I didn't want to root these voices. I don't want, I don't want to root my work in the narrowness of the American imagination, right? I don't want that, right? I don't want it that at all, at all. And uh, because if I start giving in to that narrowness of the American imagination or root my work in there, uh, I, 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 I'm breaking saying I give up, right? <laughs> I, I, I can't do that. I'm overwhelmed by the narrowness. Right? I am overwhelmed by it in a certain sense, but I will not let my imagination be overwhelmed by it, right? Yeah, and I think, and what, what is it like, what do you think? Is it fair to say that part of the reason, like both languages are moving together, you've got Spanish and English and, and because it's part of that, like part of what you're talking about, Eduardo, is, is, that, is that right? The idea, well, you know, Coast Switching is in my first book, and Coast Switching is in my second book. There's moving backs from English and Spanish. My English is, my Spanish is never italicized or put in context. There's not a glossary in the back of the first book. There's not, there's not a glossary in the back of the second book, right? It's centering both, and it's not centering one language over another, right? It's just 
making them, putting them on equal footing, right? In, in my work, in my imagination. Yeah. That said, I mean, most of the work is in English. So there is kind of a hierarchy set in because I tend to think mostly in English, right? Because I, even though Spanish was my first tongue, it has been educated out of me at the end of the day. Yes. All right, mm -hmm. right. But it's also very complicated too, because when people think about, okay, you're working with Spanish as a way to like disrupt a, a colonial mindset or, or colonial language. We feel, people often forget Spanish itself is a colonial tongue. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, these are two colonial tongues I'm working with. Right? This is how complicated things are, right? <laughs> how complicit we all are, right? So yes, because Mexico is a, is a settler state too, right? right? Uh, uh, they, uh, uh, mestizos, I notion of mestizos are half Spanish, half indigenous is a way, to, really quite frankly, to cancel out and to reduce indigenous people, indigenous cultures, right? So um, I'm very conscious of that too. So I, I, you know, but this, the language, these are the languages I have, right? So I need to work with them. Right. right? But I'm very conscious of that. I know, right? There's uh, this valid critiques. Yeah, these, you know, these are colonial tongues too, right? So how can one colonial tongue, uh, you know, uh, be less another. colonial. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They're both drenched and riddled with those kind of contradictions and uh, tragedies, right? That continue yeah. to unfold. Yeah. Eduardo, would you mind reading some oh, sure. of the testaments for us so that, that we can hear what we've sure, been talking of about? Of course, of course. Uh, uh, the first voice. Is, I, I imagine is a, a young queer immigrant moving through the desert uh, near death probably and thinking about his father in his maybe last few hours, his last few days. This language pulls in Spanish. This language also pulls in a lot of uh, advertising language that you will catch. This is a poem from Testament Scratch into a water station barrel. Apa, dying is boring. To pass las horas, I carve our last name all over my body. I try to recall the sweat, the taste of Pablo's sweat. Whiskey, no, wet dirt, sea. I stuffed English into my mouth, spit out chingaderas, have it your way, home of the whopper, run for the border, aguas, the mirror betrayed us, erased your face from my face, gave me mother's smile, narrow nariz, once I wore her necklace, the gold slit obscene. God, I was beautiful. Cada noche, I sleep with dead men. The coyote was the third to die. Your, your money is still in his wallet. Quien engaña, no gana. Apa, there's a photo in my bolsillo of a skeleton shrouded in black flames. Nuestra Señora de la Santa Muerte, patron saint of smugglers, pickpocket and jotos. La Flaca, Senora Negra, La Huesuda, Aguas. An animal is prowling the station. It shimmies with hunger, it shimmers with thirst. To keep it away, I hurl my memories at it. Your laughter is now snagged on its fangs. Your pain now breathes inside its lungs. Taste the feeling. Siempre Coca-Cola, America's real choice. I gathered and smashed bottles. Apa, follow the glass snaking from the barrel to a mesquite to find my body. Lips blue, skin thick with scabs. Apa, kneel in the shade, peel the scabs, touch our last name, Solis. This poem is a 
I imagine a woman uh, moving through the desert, tr thinking of all the things she carries. Uh, Eduardo, home. could we could we talk a little bit about oh, this so poem sure. first, and then and then because oh, thank you. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was waiting because I was waiting for you to pause. I didn't want to start talking until <laughs> 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 like the the finish moment. But um, yeah, so. I love this poem. Thank you for choosing this one to read. And it's and it's the first of the testaments mm -hmm. in guillotine. It's not the first poem in guillotine. No, 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 no. Ceremonial is. Yeah. Um, it's a very personal eye-centric poem. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, there, are, there are basically three sequences that composed uh, a guillotine, the testament sequence. Uh, they're voice-driven poems. Um, of uh, immigrants moving and thinking uh, as they move through the desert. The second is a, very, a smaller sequence is the drop house poems. The drop houses are places where uh, immigrants are brought by their, their human smugglers and held ransom until their families can pay way more than they agreed to for, the, for, the, for, for, for being moved from Mexico, Central America, into the United States. Uh, they're very, they used to be very common in Southern Arizona, Phoenix, the capital of Arizona. Uh, they have gone down. They're not as common as, as before, but they're still there. Like, they're very horrible places where people are just crowd into a room 30, 40 deep, right? And people just wait for their family members to pay the ransom so they can be released. And the third sequence is a little more, it's a more loose sequence, but it's about unrequited love, a lyric speaker yearning for another, a, another who cannot return those feelings. So those are the three sequences basically that can make up guillotine. And, and Eduardo, can you say, because um, it feels right, like it feels like it's a, the guillotine is itself, like it's like it, how it moves together, you know, the moving and thinking and, and feeling of it. Is it because this is what the work was presenting to you that you also felt them in relationship or, or yeah, or how, how did that work for you? Or, or are there some poems that didn't make it into guillotine? Yes. There are poems that didn't make it into guillotine and poems that, in my imagination, probably should have been in guillotine, but there was not time enough to write them or I just, I just oh. didn't, I, or I didn't have the skill set yet to write them. And that happened for the first book, Slow Lightning. There are a couple of poems in guillotine, the more personal poems that I wanted, I think, in the first book, but I couldn't get to them because I couldn't write them at that time. But I could write them afterwards, right? And there's a couple of those poems in my mind that I think I thought belonged in guillotine, but I wasn't ready or willing to write them maybe. Uh, so they'll probably be for the third book. But structurally, order-wise, I, for me, I have a hard time structuring my books. I remember uh, when Carl Phillips called me to say that I had one of the Yale series for the first book, he was very sweet and very wonderful. But I remember one of, the, one of the things he did tell me that he said, your title is off and your order is atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Carl, bringing the truth, the truth bomb. <laughs> and I, I knew he was right because those were the things in the back of my head when I sent it off, right? You know, I sent it off. I drove to the post office in Castro Grande, Arizona at 4.30, you know, closed at 5 o'clock, the mm. day the Yale series had its postmark deadline, right? Sitting in my car thinking, it's not ready. It's, these poems are not good. Who's going to buy this? What are you doing, right? But as I said, I just said, you, you already got the check written. You already bridged it out. It's mailed, stamped, you know, it's stamped already. Send it out, send it out, right? But even at the last minute, I was doubting myself and anxiety. But I did know things were off about the manuscript. And two of the things I knew were off were the title 
and the order for the first and third section. And it, I was glad to hear that. So we, he helped me find an order, right? And for the second book, I actually had uh, the help of my editor at Grave of Jeff Schatz, who was an, an attentive, immense reader of poetry. So he knew like structurally uh, what kind of suggestions to make, right? For example, there's a poem called Questions for My Body, but there are no question marks at the end of the questions, right? right? There's no question marks, right? And I had another poem, the postmortem, that's very similar, ask a question and an answer, right? But I did have question marks there, right? He says, why do you just take out the question marks here? So there's kind of uh, uh, an echo there, right? So like stuff like that, it just helped me like unite and bridge everything together, right? And once I realized that there was going to be, a, the Testament's going to be a huge part of the second book, then I realized, oh, these other more personal poems, these, these very eye-centric poems themselves would be another kind of grouping. Testament. Right? And uh, yeah, testament. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and testament is a different kind, a personal hurt, an intimate hurt, right? And the word guillotine makes sense to me because the, the, the notion's from obvious. The border itself has a guillotine, right? All right? And also the guillotine of, of desire and love, you know, cutting us from us from reality, right? Uh, so that kind of resonated with both the the persona poems in te in testament and also the more intimate poems, right? Unrequited love, being unwanted from one nation state for another nation state, cut right? off, yeah. yeah, cut off, yeah, yeah, and wounded, right, right, yeah, the, yeah, the wound as a, you know, there's a line in the book that was really haunting haunting and it, it was it was in my head for years before i put it in a poem because it became kind of a kind of a, a compass for me uh, is that missing that right a comp yeah compass right it, it helped me kind of figure out the rest of the poems like directing me where, where oh, I a compass yeah yeah yeah. Compass, yeah 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 yeah. Is, yeah yeah uh a wound is a self-reporting instrument right and like like i carry that for a long time because it was yeah all these have a different kind of hurts right were directing me to language to imagery right so and guillotine actually it comes it wasn't it wasn't in the the first poem that you read was it because i when it, it was oh it's in the um it's in the second one yeah, yeah, of, yeah, book, of, yeah. of the testaments because i was like ah oh, here it is so yeah. it comes in relatively early and was that something that you did is that help was that part of why you chose the structure of the order of the te testaments well yeah guillotine appears in the in the third poem in the book right and and and, and then uh, and then appears in the first poem in the latter in the oh, let me see <laughs> yes there's no there's there the broken poems are broken into in sections clusters right so the section, the cluster that begins with the second epigraph from Elise. Is, uh, right. It's yeah, the title poem yeah, for yeah, that. It becomes the title poem, right? And then, of course, the, like I mentioned guillotine, right? And the title itself, right? So it is kind of a stretched out, you know, from the beginning, then near the middle-ish. Yeah, at the end of the day. Yeah, but that's all, like, um, it's it's ways that then you can see the the book is a body as well as the, and the, the, connections and, like, main arteries or so, or, um, yeah. yeah. Um, how, um, how, how did you find your way back to the lyric, Eduardo? Because you mentioned that, and it feels like reading your poems here, it's hard to see you cut off from that. 
but it, 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 it was surprising for me too that I couldn't return to the lyric space for, for a while at the beginning of the pandemic, right? But after a while, because, you know, I love poetry. I love lyric poems, right? I'm a reader before I'm a writer. And I just, I just craved it after a while, right? I, just, I craved it, right? And uh, even though I wasn't reading poetry at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I was still moving through, moving through the world or moving through my apartment attentive right, and paying attention to things as much as I could. Uh, so that never went away, that kind of attentiveness, you know, which is the heart of my creative practice. Uh, so that just being a, attentive, noticing things or things that are not very beautiful or things that are bewildering, it just led me back to the poem itself because I, was, I, I had enough of a break that I was ready to engage with an, a lyric speaker, right? Somebody else is into you already, right? right? Yes. And also because, uh, the, all those personal poems, I keep saying it, is that it was the pandemic that kind of put me off the lyric poem, the interiority, but it, about that same time, I, I realized that the book was, you know, it was done, right? You know, I was on get a finished copy, I think a month or so, right? So maybe that had a, a something to do with it too. Like psychologically, I was kind of like preparing myself, right, for, uh, for the book's release in August because those eye-centered poems are very intimate. And they're very, I, I, I feel very vulnerable and raw and, and exposed when I read those poems out loud, right? like ceremonial or autobiography of my hungers, right? Uh, uh, I remember the first time I read ceremonial years, about four years ago at a retreat, and, and I, I cried halfway through it because I wasn't ready to release it, right? So I learned, okay, you're not ready to to talk about this so you're not ready to read these right so i stopped reading it for a while and i kept most of the new poems secret until i was ready to uh, emotionally to read them right because for me I, I just feel emotionally devastated uh, reading them again and again it gets better each time i do it uh right there's more distance right uh but i think now just talking to you t right now it makes sense that one of the reasons i kind of moved away from the lyric is because uh uh i was Oversaturated. I was just. I needed a break from my own kind of uh, vulnerability, my own kind of uh, uh, exposure to my own kind of hurt, right, and woundedness, right. That, that I found. I found on the page again and again, and, and I knew I was going to be doing a lot come the fall, <laughs> right. So, right, right. Yeah. If that kind of makes sense. Yeah. That, that does. That does. How did you? So, when did you know ceremonial would be the 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 lead poem that becomes the lens of guillotine. It's one of the last moves we, me, I did for the order uh, because I, I kept, I kept thinking for the longest time. I, again, intention, right? Which is my enemy, and but there I was, intention, right? Uh, I, I kept because guillotine, right? A clean cut, right? No, guillotine, right? It, it breaks something, right? It divides something usually into two, right? Now I think this book has been two sections, two movements: the personal poems. Maybe the first and the the, la the second, all that voice driven, the testament sequence, right? But then we had that the shorter sequence, the drop house sequence, right? And then and that didn't kind of fit in there. Like, so are we going to have like a smaller third section? I don't want a three section book, second book. I already had a three section first book. I don't want that for the second book. So that didn't kind of make sense to me. And then I realized when I put all the intimate poems together, all the eye centric poems, it was overwhelming to have them all side by side. It was way too much for the reader. It was way too much emotion, too much, uh, too much rawness there, right? So, like, how do we break it up? How do you break it up? So, I, I, one day just dawned on me, how about I just move ceremonial to the beginning 
like a preface, right? A front piece, an entrance. Right. Uh, yeah, right. And then that is a very, that's a very emotionally rich poem, right? So that kind of, but just removing it from the more, the other personal poems, those poems were allowed to breathe a bit more. There was more room for them to breathe, right? Mm-hmm. right, right. And then mm-hmm. I moved uh, the shorter sequence, the, t- the drop house poem, into its own little section. So that kind of made sense. It was, it was by trial and error, finding it. Why, and how to feel. I just knew it wasn't working. Jeff Schatz was helping me think about this structure, that order, when we were still thinking about just two sections. It just it never, nothing really appealed to me or nothing instinctively felt right. Because I trust my instincts now as a writer. Right? I trust my instincts because I've been reading and honing them, reading other work and my work, own work for so long so that I've honed them and I trust myself. One thing I do to continuously to continue to hone my instincts, every time I read a poem that I really love in a journal, I, I mess it up. I say, okay, I love what Nally Diaz did with this line break, but I would do break that line this way. Right? I love what Ocean Vuong did image-wise here. I would phrase it this way. Right, I love the way Ricky, Ricky Laurentiis broke their poem this way. Right, I would, I would, I would break it this way. Right, just a little slight thing I do. Right, just, just I keep building up my instincts, honing my instincts as, as a, as, as a writer, my own aesthetics. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, that is so. Um, do you do you do translating, Eduardo, at all too? Like. Some small snippets of Spanish poems, German poems from my, in my own notebooks, my own notebooks. It's just, because just that brief engagement with other grammars, other musics, I find very helpful. Yeah, very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, when, when you were, when you were talking, that's what I was thinking when, um, cause I would try to like, to, to re-engage with learning Spanish that I had learned in undergrad. But yeah, when yeah. I got back into an MFA program, I had these Pablo Neruda books, which, yeah. cause at that time, Copper Canyon Press was publishing um, the Spanish with the English. So you mm-hmm. could have both. And then I would have different translations of uh, Neruda. And so then I would also find myself as I got, I think, whatever, a little better at it. I don't know. Now I'm thinking I should just not be telling you this story. But I would think that translator did not get this right. (laughs) And this is what I I would do. Yeah, I see that a lot, especially with a lot of Lorca translations, right? Like, that phrase is a bit off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel right. It's not vivid enough or, okay, yeah. There's another, there's there's Spanish vernacular that could do that kind of, that's closer to this in a clean academic Spanish that are using instead, right? Yeah. So every translation is a, you know, is a, is a different, is, is a translation, right? So it's, a, it's a ghost, right? It's a, is a, a translation is a ghost that exists between the original and the, and the new text, right? It's, it's lovely. Com- completely, because it's kind of a new thing, right? That the, yeah. another maker is there. Exactly, yeah. With- so, yeah. So I'm at that stage where I do trust my instincts and, and I just didn't figure, uh, I, when we finally figure out the order of the ceremony at the beginning, the testaments and some intimate poems with some border poems, like the Border Patrol agent poem and the yes. um, Song of the Open Road and the commercial break poem, also embedded there, and it kind of made, made sense, right? They felt good, right? Because it didn't, also, what I was doing, again, with those, like, this insistence of having two sections for the, uh, for, as the original order of guillotine, I was, I was blocking my order, right? Like, all testament poems here, <laughs> all eye-centric poems here for them. And I was blocking, which, is what, which I did for slow lining for the first and third sections, which were the sections Carl Phillips didn't like, right? I was, I was 
blocking. <laughs> all right. So I was doing that again. Right. We, uh, what are we going to do? Right. So <laughs> I, you know, I, because you, sometimes you, you just don't know your work. All right. You, you're just too close to it to really see it. That's why you need friends or readers. Right. But that said, you know, I, I had such a horrible time at Iowa that I never share my work with anybody. I rarely share my work with everybody, anybody. Right. I just don't like that. The notion of being workshop has really kind of, um, I just find that kind of traumatic. I don't want to return to that, right? But with Jeff Schatz, it was different because he was an editor, right? He, he had a, he had a, a vision uh, and an appreciation for the work, right? And, and uh, I, I enjoyed that process immensely because it was immensely helpful having his eyes and his opinions on the work. And he, I think he, because just don't you think he had like a type of, a different type of understanding of it, but in keeping with an awareness of your vision, Yes, yes, and he was he was firm, but uh, but also encouraging. I mean, I remember I wanted to include a very small little image, and I wanted to include a very small image-driven poem at the end, near the end of the putting together process, and he had a had an image about pupils, uh, uh, windows hatching out of a pupil. He goes, you know, isn't that kind of a well-worn trope? <laughs> Other way to say cliche, right? <laughs> it was nice that he put it that way, though. Like, well, you, you know, right, that is kind of true, right? So just let's just forget that that little poem, right? So yeah, but so some of those little poems, though, that's the hardest to let go of those because they're like yeah. they 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 feel like when you when you have them, there's something in them that's like that spark. But then sometimes, if it's not enough of something for yeah. someone else, they're like, that's a bit flat yeah you know every book you know needs peaks and valleys highs and lows and not every you know every book not every poem and not every poem in a book is going to be amazing or jaw-droppingly good or, or have resonance with a reader well every book needs what i call buttress poems you know you know to borrow a term from architecture right a buttress is uh, supports a larger uh, a wall right or supports a portion of the building right my buttress poems, that's what I think about, they support themselves are kind of slight, right? And, and maybe mm -hmm. not so beautiful as the rest of the building, mm -hmm. but they're supporting, right? The, the motifs, the themes, right? The language or the linguistic approach of the rest of the work, right? So it, both slow lining and gating have a, a few buttress poems in my, the way mm -hmm. I see them, right? They're there to support do, other poems. Do, do they know they're the buttress poems? Of course they don't. Do they know <laughs> They, they think that they think they're, they're my favorite children, right? <laughs> completely, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I see. But I see. Like questions from my body is a buttress poem because it kind of rephrases and uh, rearticulates uh, the the hurt speaker uh, emotional intellectual state, right? Uh, poem written and and if the Federico Garcia Lorca Park. That's a little buttress poem too, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So, but. They work, I like how they work, right? There, there's, some, there's some shine there. Some of the lines and images I really love, right? But they're in service too, uh, to the other poems in the, that orbit them. They're supporting yeah. them. I really, yeah, I gotta say that I really do, I did really love questions. Um, yeah, should, should I read it? Please, would you? Yeah, sure. Do you have it? I've got too many dog ears right now to here, jump. I got, I got here. Got okay, this poem is titled Questions for My Body. Why are you nocturnal? How many cathedrals have you entered 
has cruelty ever saved you? Do you remember the length of his thumbs? Isn't that enough cake? Have you ever soaked your feet in gasoline? Do you still fear the virus? How can you sleep in this heat? Is that a soap patch? Did you laugh or cry at Keats' grave? Have you been claimed? I love that the line, do you still fear the virus is so it's different. It reads differently now, right? So yeah, yeah, so like, oh, things language. I love, I love how language is so malleable and multivalent, right? It casts so many different shadows. Like in one year it might, it acquires new meaning because of what's going on, right? So. And that one certainly does. Yeah, yeah. Like it, yeah. I think that's why it kind of was like a, like a, like a subtle knife for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> yes, know? yes, it is like, like, whoa, 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 yeah. But that poem came to me years ago when I first went to uh, Lisboa, Portugal to visit. I was entering a very beautiful cathedral and uh, just the, the, the question, how many cathedrals have you entered during this trip, right? And, I, and, I, and I, then I just, I just shortened the thought, how many cathedrals have you entered? And that just stayed with me and I knew, I knew that was something, right? Right. Again, I trust my instincts. So into the notebook it went and I let it just to, I let it marinate, uh, I dwelled with it and it eventually came to me, right? Eventually, right? It took a while to narrow down how many questions there. The poem went from being like 20 questions just to five questions. I just found like a sweet spot between, yeah. Yeah, but I eventually, I, again, I trusted my instincts. Oh, this feels about right. This feels about right. Enough questions, right? There's one humorous one. Is there? Is that a soap patch? It usually falls flat. People like don't understand what it is. You know. <laughs> I enjoyed it because I was just getting to know you, like researching you, and I was like, oh, Eduardo. It really falls flat. Yeah, but what are you going to do, right? I, I got a chuckle out of it when I. <laughs> yeah. Eduardo, you also mentioned that there is there. I don't know. Is there another poem you'd want to read from Guillotine? Because I felt like I just kind of asked you to read that one. No, um, it, is it, there, it, and is there one like? Because when you're talking about the poems that you knew were there, but you you didn't yet have them until Guillotine, are those are those some of the emotional the I poems? Yes, because. I I didn't know how to write about this kind of uh, experience, right? I felt it was, it was very hard to go through, to experience, and I didn't know how to translate that kind of wound, that, that kind of self-inflicted wound, uh, how to translate onto the page, right? And um, it's just, I realized that, uh, you know, I had all these, like, you know, rules for myself, don't do that, don't do that, you know, don't have an audience, don't think about intentionality. But for the second book, I found myself like uh, returning to those, uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the time when I didn't have rules. So, so I was doing the same kind of spinning the wheels and overriding and writing in a way that wasn't beneficial because I was thinking with intention, right? Have, my intention was, I have to get right these poems. I have to say what actually happened. I had to cleave closer to the truth. I'm like, that never works for me <laughs> as a writer, right? right? Because, you know, language is not an animal we can train, all right? And again, I, I, I know that, I know that, but here I was trying to force that, that language, my animal, to do certain things, right? And I'm like, no, right? Don't base it on the factual, on the memory. Let the imagination also have its say, right? So when I turn that beloved into a composite figure, 
right? A bit of who it was, a bit of somebody else, a bit of somebody else, a bit of an imagined person, then I could start writing about that person in a way that was interesting. Right? And alive, like and in, alive. in, in and its I, own way. And, and for the poem Autobiography of My Hungers, it, it's kind of set in this, uh, in a booth, in a bar, right? For the longest time, I just could not write the poem in a way that was interesting or satisfying because all the language was moving through that one specific moment. You know, these two people at a bar, right, in a booth, right? That's what the poem just kept moving through, right? right? So in a sense, that little, that memory became a constriction. I was forcing all the language into this narrowness, this constriction. The room had no language to move. The, the language had no space to breathe, no space to move, right? right? Only when I made that memory a filter, I pushed other experiences, other memories, other kind of languages through it, then it made sense. Right? Could, you, could you read that one for us, Eduardo? Yeah, of course. That poem became not only about that moment, right? About the speaker and, and the beloved, right? The unrequited love kind of moment there, right? But it also became about growing up uh, during the AIDS epidemic, right? Thinking that thinness equated the first symptom of the disease, that kind of stuff, my mother's reaction to that. So it became more multivalent, richer, right? And I, and I did that again and again for the first book. I, I, I made my memories filters, right? More possibilities for the language. But again, for the second book, I, I, just, I just thought I could do it differently and it never worked out, right? So I had to return to my rules. And it, was, it, it helped, it helped at the end of the day. It helped me write the second book, the rules that I imposed on myself. This is um, kind of a keystone poem in, in the book. It kind of informs the rest of the kind of eye-centric poems. It kind of gives the narrative, a story, right? Uh, this title is actually uh, the title of a, a memoir by one of my mentors, uh, Rigoberto Gonzalez. So I gotta give him a nod for that title. It's a beautiful title. Autobiography of My Hungers. His beard, an avalanche of honey, an avalanche of thorns. In a bar too close to the Pacific, he said, I don't love you, but not because I couldn't be attracted to you. Liar, even my soul is pot-bellied. Thinness in my mind equals the gay men on the nightly news, kissed by death and public scorn. The anchorman declaring weight loss is one of the first symptoms. The Portuguese have a word for imaginary never to be experienced love, whoop-de-doo. I don't love you, he said. The words flung him back in his eyes, I saw it, to another bar where a woman sidestepped his desire, another hunger, our friendship. In 10th grade, weeks after my first kiss, my mother said, you're looking thinner. That evening, I smuggled a cake into my room. I ate it with my hands, licked buttercream off my thumbs until I puked. Desire with no future, bitter longing. I starve myself by yearning for intimacy that doesn't and won't exist. Holding hands on a ferry, tracing with the tip of my tongue a jawline. In a bar too close to the Pacific, he said, I don't love you but not because I couldn't be attracted to you. His beard, an avalanche of thorns, an avalanche of honey. 
Thank you, Eduardo. My pleasure, Jean. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I've loved it. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for the poems. And, and I'll say today on Living Writers, Eduardo C. Corral, guillotine. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. It is a wonderful afternoon because you decide to tune your FM dial to 88.3. The station is WCBN in Ann Arbor. The show is the Daily Sports Report. And my name is Joshua Tenzer. I am joined here by Charlie Brigham and Andrew Miller. Quickly, before we get started, if you enjoy listening to the DSR, it's pretty much paramount that DSR, um, excuse me, that WCBN Sports has some sort of representation on the board of directors for WCBN. So if you have a student, or if you are a student, and you really like DSR and you like WCBN sports and you're able to vote in the board of whatever it is, vote for me. I, I swear I'll, I'll know what the name is, board of directors or board of executives. I'll figure it out by the end, but vote for me, Joshua Tenzer. Anyway, how you boys doing? Tenzer, your DSR intros never fail. Thank they're, you. They're absolute gold every time. They <laughs> seriously, seriously never fail. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. I was hyped from the beginning. Oh my lord! The last what the last DSR I did with you, the intro was really good, and I was like, "There's no way he tops it." And then he did. I did. I, I I'm running for something, and I forgot what it was called. That that shows dedication and nice. uh, and I, that I pay attention. Nice. So, shall we talk about how March Madness ended? And it wasn't a great game. I mean, it was a lot of offense, but Gonzaga was unable to clinch that thirty. 2-0 season, 31-0 season, that perfect season, uh, falling to Baylor in the championship. It seemed like the game was over at halftime. Got, uh, Baylor got out to a real fast start early. I think they were up like 23-8 to with 10 minutes to go in the first half. I mean, it's not what I expected. I don't think it's what anybody expected. I mean, Gonzaga, every year, you know, they run through their regular season – they roll through their con- 